We're going to read God's word this morning from Acts chapter 26 and we continue on the story of Paul. Paul has now returned to Jerusalem. We saw part of that journey last week as he passed Ephesus. And as he was returning to Jerusalem, there were many warnings of the suffering that he would have there. His friends begged him not to go. There was a prophecy that he'd be imprisoned there. And as we said, saw last week as he passed by Ephesus, he said to the Ephesian elders he would never see them again. Well, he returned to Jerusalem and there there was a disturbance. There was a riot. Paul was arrested in the temple. And then there are a series of trials that Paul goes through. He's tried by the mob as he gives his defence to them. He's tried by the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. He's then tried again by the Roman governor, Felix. And then he's left in prison for two years because Felix doesn't know what to do with him until he's brought back by the new governor, Festus, and brought to a last trial before King Agrippa. And it's that trial we're going to read the script of today. And it's from Acts chapter 26. Let us hear the word of God. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defence. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well accustomed with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We fell to the ground. And I heard a voice say to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appointed you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. 
I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not a disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses would, would, said would have happened, that the Messiah would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defence. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I, I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think you can make me in such a short time, you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all that are listening to me today may become what I am. Well, except for these chains. The king rose and with him, the governor and Bernice and those standing with him. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word. Did you notice I've taken my jacket off? <laughs> it's what a film producer would call a continuity error when you're filming different parts of something and one thing doesn't quite match up and it can distract the audience. I wonder that there are going to be different things that we will remember from these services after I've recorded them. Perhaps the background I've used or the lighting or whether my hair was combed or cut. But that's often the way of these things. We focus on the small things rather than on the enormity of the Word of God. We do it in churches all the time, don't we? Often the things that we get uptight about or we have a fight about are actually quite small. Will we use a small glass or a large cup for communion? What time will the service be? Where will the flowers go? Will the children come in before or after this hymn? Lots of things that Christians get uptight about, sometimes ignoring the enormity of the transformational gospel that they're being preached. It's always been that way. In fact, religious people are notorious for being small c conservatives with the traditions and the rituals 
and their way of doing things, which is ironic when you think what they're proclaiming is the God who has changed the world in Jesus Christ and is calling lives to be radically changed. To give you a little bit of a relevant illustration, we are looking at the moment about having services in October on Sunday mornings, which some of you hopefully will be able to attend. And one of the things that's been really worrying us is I suppose that we're going to have to have a booking system and that's all new. That we're going to have the service times maybe at a different time and that won't be convenient for everybody. And then I'm struck with the fact that the gospel isn't something that comes and says, well, it's inconvenient to be up an hour early. It's something that comes and says, pick up your cross and follow me. Give your whole life to me. I'm struck as we read this story of Paul and particularly the final part of the story that Paul wasn't just proclaiming a life-changing gospel, he was living it. It's interesting that we are given in scripture both the letters which tell us what Paul taught, what Paul believed, and also the acts which tells us how Paul lived. And we get that notion that following Jesus for him was changing everything. He was changing the world as he moved around, but it came at a cost, an inconvenient cost to his own life. Jesus had said to his followers near his own death, this, they will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. They will bring you to trial before governors and kings for my name. Well, today, Paul is literally on trial before a governor and a king. That might not happen to us, but it's notable that as Jesus speaks in, in Luke 21, he begins with the story of the widow's might, the woman who came very poor with a coin and put the whole coin in the temple box. And Jesus says that is what discipleship looks like. It is putting your whole self in, committed to God in every way. But if we are to be a people who do that, who live it out in every part of our lives, first of all, we need to get an idea of the enormity of the gospel, of the size and the scale of what God is doing in Jesus Christ as he reconciles the world to himself, how God is changing the politics, the economics, life itself in Jesus Christ and inviting us to be part of this huge thing. Today's reading will feature Paul answering some of his opponents and essentially in those chapters of the end of Acts, he had two sets of opponents. The first opponents he met in Jerusalem were the same opponents that Jesus had met. They were the Jewish authorities, the religious authorities, doing what religious authorities often do, resisting change. You see, they didn't believe that the world had changed because of, the, of Jesus. They didn't believe Jesus had risen from the dead. They didn't believe that the Messiah had come. They didn't believe that God's promises had been fulfilled. And so essentially, they were very concerned about these Christians, and particularly Paul, who seemed to be threatening the order, the natural order, the order that they taught in their traditions between Jew and Gentile. Seemed to be threatening all of this. At the same time, we have the secular opponents of Paul. Oh, well, opponents may be too strong a word, but we have the Roman authorities. And what they're really concerned for is law and order. Don't rock the boat. Don't cause a riot. Don't upset the peace of the emperor. Is that what you're about, Paul? And in this chapter, 
chapter 26, Paul is making a, a legal defense. And in one sense, he's coming and saying, I, I, I'm not a troublemaker. I'm not against Judaism. I'm a loyal Jew. What I'm saying isn't rejecting the scriptures, it's upholding them. What I'm saying isn't throwing away what God has said in the past, it's a fulfillment of it. I am a loyal Jew, proclaiming the same God who is yesterday, today and forever, always the same. And to the Romans, he's saying, I'm a, I'm a respectable citizen. Luke is at pains in all of these trials to have the Roman authorities very clearly say Paul is innocent. What he is doing is legal. He's not rocking the political boat in that sense. And yet at the same time, and this is really important, Paul is saying something in this defence that is radical. The resurrection of Jesus has changed the world forever. It brings huge transformation. It is inviting every human being to change from darkness to light, from worshipping Satan to following the true and living God. And he underlines this by telling his own story of how this gospel grabbing him changed his life forever on the Damascus Road as he met Jesus, as the people he thought were evil, that he thought he had to persecute, were actually the people that the God that he loved identified with. And as he talks of the change in his own life, King Agrippa says, Paul, are you trying to make me a Christian? <laughs> Paul doesn't duck it, does he? Yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to do, Agrippa. I'd love for you to become a follower of Jesus. I'm praying that that would happen. I wonder that we might have missed that one. I wonder if we'd been Paul, we might have said, oh, no, no, I'm not really trying to change you at all. Not at all. I'm just asking you to tolerate me and understand me. The church, in many ways, has been doing that a lot in our society. It's trying to tell the world that actually we're not trouble. Actually, we just want left alone. We just want tolerated. Rather than actually challenge the world with our life-transforming message. So let's dig a little deeper. The jacket's back on. Did you notice? Change. Anyway, let's dig in a little bit. Verses 4 to 8, Paul begins by talking about his life in Judaism. Notice when Paul talks about his life as a Pharisee, he never says, when I once was a Jew before I became a Christian. We think in those mindsets, but for Paul, the two things were continuous. He was still a Jew. It was simply that he'd understood that Jesus was the Messiah. He speaks, though here, quite clearly of a particular aspect of Judaism, and that is his hope. Not just a set of rules or a way of living or a way of relating to God, but of what God had promised Israel, what God had promised to do through Israel, what God had given Israel as a purpose. Verse six, the hope in what God has promised our ancestors. Verse seven, the promise that the 12 tribes hoped to see fulfilled that kept them serving through the long years. The Old Testament is just full of promise. It starts with the creation that is made and is good and yet falls. It falls through the serpent bringing sin and men and women choosing to be their own gods and rejecting God. And yet even in the curse that is given in Genesis 3 that everything will fall from here, there is hope. One day, says God, 
the heel of the woman's son will crush the serpent's head. The promise of hope continues. Abraham is called in chapter 12 of Genesis and Abraham is not just called as the first Jew so that there will be a Jewish people to bless the Jewish people but there is a purpose, a creation purpose within it. Abraham is called and he will have a people and they will be blessed in order that they might be a blessing to all nations or as it will later be put, a light to the Gentiles. If we go forward from Abraham we can go all the way to David. And the idea in David was that this king was ruling Israel, but he was promised that God would establish in him a house that would rule not just Israel, but would rule the whole world, a throne that would last forever. And then the calamity. Israel ended up in exile in Babylon. But in that period of finding themselves in exile, we find the great words of the prophetic hope become bigger and bigger. Not just a promise that through Ezra and Nehemiah that they would end up back in the promised land with a temple rebuilt, but something far bigger than that, that the glory of the Lord would be seen through Israel by all the nations. That what would need to be put right to put Israel right would be justice for all the nations. That a day of the Lord would come when God would put everything right not just Israel, that would be too small, but everything right. That a Messiah would come that would bring justice and truth to all, a king. The government would be on his shoulder, says Isaiah, and his name will be God with us, Emmanuel. Yet Isaiah also pointing to the Messiah that was to come as a sufferer, one who would take the sins of the people upon himself. And a day would come when creation would be healed, when lion would lie with the lamb, when everything would be made right again. This was the hope that Israel was pointed to. And we could go on and on and on picking up on this, that the day would come when the Holy Spirit that was given to priests and to kings would be given to all people, that everybody would have God's law written on their hearts. And the old and the young would prophesy and know God. This is the hope of Israel. And so when Paul turns to King Agrippa, and King Agrippa was a Herod, he was one of the Herodian dynasty, they were at least nominally Jews, Herod Agrippa would certainly have known the Old Testament and nominally believed it, and he says to him in verse 28, do you believe the prophets? And what he's asking him is not just do you assent to the Jewish law and believe that, but do you believe the hope that is within it? Because if you believe it, then look at what God is doing in Jesus. It's very significant that as you look at the Old Testament time and time again, you can see pointers to the story of Easter. The Passover with its lamb that would kill the blood on the doorpost would set the people free, pointing to the Passover lamb of God that died for the sins of the world. The temple itself, with all that sacrifice where people went up to find forgiveness of sins, pointing to the greater sacrifice that would come, that would end all sacrifices. You see, the promise that is within Israel isn't just something that's static for religious people to enjoy and have their rules. It was about a God who was actively working to heal creation itself. That's why Paul asks that question in verse 8. Why should anyone find it incredible that God raises the dead? It's a 
double-ended question, he's partly asking why would you find it incredible that there was a hope and a purpose, that there wasn't just nothing after death, but there was a creator God who had a purpose for the whole of creation? And he's partly asking, why wouldn't a God who could do all that bring his son and raise him from the dead? If you take the Old Testament seriously, why aren't you looking for more than just religion that needs to protect itself? Why aren't you looking and seeing that God perhaps is bringing to bear all that he promised that, that through the Jewish people would come a blessing to the whole world as the Messiah was known who suffered and died. Agrippa, he says, you know the Bible, open your eyes. And suppose that question is there for us today. If we take the Bible seriously, then it begins to transform what we do. We're not just running a religious institution as good people, but we're actually expecting that God is healing this creation through Jesus Christ. That God is hearing our prayers. That God does use people. That does, God does see lives transformed. That we can expect as we proclaim this message, it will impact on our society and our community and our world. We do have a part to play in God's big plan. But notice there are two figures here listening to Paul. One is the guy who nominally believes the Bible, Agrippa. The other is Festus, the Roman. Festus is, I think, a, a very secular man. We might recognise him. Verse 24, as he hears this, he says, Paul, you're out of your mind, all this talk. And that sort of picks up on what we know about Festus. If you look at the previous chapter, chapter 25, verses 19, he sort of dismisses what Paul is saying by saying this is some sort of religious quarrel. This guy, Paul, is talking about somebody called Jesus who's dead and he, he claims he was alive. It's a sort of dismissive thing. These things don't really happen. God doesn't really do stuff like that. Dead men don't rise. It's interesting that for the last 300 years that's been where our society's been at, post-enlightenment. If we can't prove it in a test tube, if we can't demonstrate that it happens every day, then we can't expect it. You can have your religion, but God, well, we don't really expect God to show up or turn up or do anything. He's just sort of there to believe in if we believe in him at all. Paul responds to it by saying, no, what I'm saying is true and reasonable if you take the Bible seriously, then why wouldn't you expect these things, these wonderful things? Paul offers more than that though. He goes on to give two other pieces of evidence. It's interesting, one of the things that he says to Agrippa is these things haven't been done in a corner. These things have been done openly. What that means is a number of things. This isn't just a bunch of stuff arguing about a Bible and personal faith. This is actually out there. It's factual. You can look at it. We're in Jerusalem. Jesus rose from the dead here. You can look at the evidence. You can speak to the eyewitnesses. Paul will later write to the Corinthians saying there are 500 of them. This happened physically in our midst. But more than that, it's not happening in a corner for another reason. You can look at the transformation. Why are we here? We're here because Jews and Gentiles have been mixing in different places and it's causing a, a furore. 
Why am I got this reputation? Because churches are being planted, because walls are coming down, because people are coming to faith. The very fabric of what is happening through the gospel is testimony to the fact that God is changing something. One of the strongest arguments for the truth of the gospel is the church. It transformed the Roman Empire. It transformed the way that we think. Yeah, granted, there's plenty in the church which seems to count against it as we behave badly. But as you begin to look at people who believe, as you begin to see the testimonies in their lives, then this is evidence that God is at work. God is moving today. It's one of the reasons why I would really encourage you to read Christian biography. Go over to the Glow Centre, buy some books about what God is doing. Find out and be inspired by it. Paul also in this passage gives personal testimony. You want to know how it is that God changes lives? You want to know why it is that you just can't sit there saying, well, nothing will change and don't rock the boat? Well, look at me. I used to think exactly the way you did. I was a Pharisee. I thought it was anathema, the idea that Jesus was the Messiah, that he rose from the dead, that Jews and Gentiles could mix together. I found all these things absolutely awful. I found, I found them so awful and so nonsensical and so against what I thought was the scripture that I persecuted these people. And then I changed. And I was the one guy that nobody thought would change. I was the one life that nobody thought Jesus would ever get, who went from despising the Christians to recognizing that Jesus was among them so much so that I was persecuting him. And not only that, in him my life found purpose. For he called me not just to stop doing something that was wrong and start living a good ethical life and believe some different things. He called me to be a witness, a servant, to go out to all the world, to Jews and to Gentiles. And as I did that, to bring the news of the fulfillment that he was working. He gave my life purpose and meaning. Look at it. This isn't just what I'm saying as I talk about purpose and meaning. Look at what I've been involved in all over the world. See and believe. You know, we very often can't win the argument with people when we get into debates. I, 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 it's, it's really worth saying God didn't call us, by the way, to win arguments. He called us to be witnesses. Sometimes you can lose the argument. All that proves is the other person can argue better. It doesn't prove anything about the truth that you believe. But we are called to testify to the God of the Bible. To believe and celebrate what he's doing. We are called to share what he means to us. How he has changed our life. And we are called to see the big picture. That this isn't just a personal transformation. This is a God who is changing the whole world. And perhaps, as we reach for the God of the Bible, as we allow in worship our hearts to soar, when we sing the praises of the one who rose his son from the dead and brings hope to the nations, as we yearn for that day of resurrection where not only Jesus has risen bodily from the grave, but when we will too, when we yearn for the day where he will heal the whole of creation. As we read our Bible from Genesis 
to Revelation and get excited about it, even the bits we don't understand, then perhaps we can offer the small things and the little things as part of a big picture. We can set aside the trivial and the squabbles and the things that should make us laugh about the ridiculous nature of our churches sometimes. And we can take hope in the God who has begun a transformation in Jesus Christ that will change the world. May that God bless you. May that God fill you. May that God call you. May you know that you are his servant and his witness in this week ahead. And may Jesus Christ bless you.